Well, good morning, Noblesville. How are we doing today? So I'm from that other campus, those other people over there. But my wife, Casey, and I, we live in Noblesville, so we're really glad to be here. We live like 10 minutes down the road, so it's really, really nice to be here with you guys this morning. Now, I know it's not good to assume things, right? You've heard it's not good to assume things, but I'm going to assume that most of you, if not all of you, have heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question. You've heard this before, right? If you're a parent, you say this to your kids, and you encourage them to ask their questions, and you say, oh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Fire away. If you're a student or if you've ever been a student, you've heard a professor or a teacher or an instructor say, no, no, ask your questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And why do we use that phrase? Because we know that learning's part of life, and one of the best ways to learn is to what? To ask questions. And so people lay lead us into asking our questions by saying there's no such thing as a dumb question. Now, wouldn't it be nice if that were true? Wouldn't it be nice if there was no such thing as a dumb question? But let's be honest. You've been in a meeting or in a classroom or in a training environment where somebody raised their hand and they asked the dumb question. And you know it's a dumb question because everybody looks in one of three places. That you either look to the corner of the room like you're staring off into space, you freeze, or you look at your shoes, or, or there's the awkward glance that people exchange of the, oh my goodness. They don't say this, but what they're thinking is, I can't believe they just asked that question. Or worse yet, someone will giggle or burst out laughing. It's like a siren. Someone's asked the dumb question, and it's awkward for everybody, but it's especially awkward for the person that's asked the question, and they just want to be swept off the planet as fast as possible, right? Take me away. I want to, be, I want to get out of here. Now, you've probably had that happen to you before. I had this happen to me recently. It wasn't in a meeting. It wasn't in a classroom. It was at a help desk at a home improvement store that will remain unnamed. I'm going to say it's nearby. That's all I'm going to tell you. But it was a Friday afternoon, and I was working on something at home, and I ran out of materials, and I needed to get materials, but what I really needed was to ask somebody a question. I thought, well, I'm going to go to my favorite home improvement store because they have people in vests that are there to answer my questions. I'm going to go find a guy in a vest. I found a guy in a vest. I asked my question. I didn't think it was a dumb question, but apparently he thought it was a dumb question. His body language indicated that I was not only wasting my time, but his. And he wasn't overtly rude to me, but what he communicated to me, he didn't say this, but what he kind of communicated to me was that people like me should rent and call the landlord. Because when we work on things at home, things burn down, right? And so that's, I left thinking, man, I just felt really dumb. And what I wanted to say was, you should turn your vest in. There's no such thing as a dumb question, man. Come on, give me, cut me some slack here, right? Now, you've been there before. You've had a question that you want to ask. It's really important to you, and you really want to know the answer to this question. And so you're looking for the right person to ask. You're trying to find somebody that looks like they know what they're doing or somebody that you can trust. And then you ask your question, and what happens? You just walk away feeling ignorant or dumb, and it's a terrible feeling. Well, if you've ever been there before, or if you're afraid you might be there in the future, I have a really, some really good news for you. Our culture has created a phrase, four magical words that allow you to ask all the dumb questions you want, and you get to shift the shame of asking the dumb question and blame it on someone else. It's this simple phrase, I'm asking for a friend. Those are magical words, and I don't know who invented the phrase, but personally, I feel like they deserve a star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. If there's still room on Mount Rushmore, we should probably put their face up there. Or at the very least, we should give them a bobblehead, right? When you do something big in our culture, you get a bobblehead. This person deserves a bobblehead. I mean, I want you to think of the genius of this phrase. It says that somebody somewhere has a question that they're dying to ask, but they're afraid. So they've asked me to ask for them, right? It, it, we can just shift 
the blame of the dumb question to someone else. I wish I had thought about this in the hardware store. I would have said, yeah, I know, it's a dumb question. He probably will burn his house down, but my friend, he just needs this stuff. Can you help me, right? It would have made me feel so much better. Now, if you didn't know this, asking for a friend has a life of its own on social media. There's a hashtag where people will post some pretty hilarious questions about everyday life, and then they'll say, oh, I'm just asking for a friend. How many of you like chips and queso? All right, I'm going to ask a question for a friend of mine. Is it socially acceptable to eat my weight in queso, right? I mean, I've... I've probably done that a time or two, but I've been, I would have never asked that out loud, but I would be glad to ask that for my friend, right? If you have young children, a friend of mine asked me this one time, how long do I need to be awake in the morning before I can lay back down and take a nap, right? I'm just asking for a friend. Now, this is my personal favorite. I, I saw this question online. I laughed out loud. Is it wrong to develop road rage when walking behind someone in the grocery store that's slow? I'm just asking for my friend, right? Now, judging by your laughter, you or a friend that you know has been in this situation, right? We all have questions about life that we want to know the answers to, and we laugh at questions like that, but what about when the questions start to hit a little closer to home? What about when it has like to do with marriage or raising our kids or things in the work world, right? We all have questions, but let's be honest, not all of us are willing to ask our questions out loud. Why? We don't want to feel dumb. I mean, it seems like everybody else has the answers. Everybody else maybe is just doing their own thing. And so we're afraid to ask our questions. But I, I am so thankful that we're at a church where we say, hey, you know what? Your questions are welcome. I'm really excited about this series, Asking for a Friend. Because over the next several weeks, Ben Krause kicked this off last week. But over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at questions that talk about who God is and what God is like. And what does it really mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Now, some ground rules as we dive into this, and I know Ben talked about it last week, but this is one of the things I love about Genesis is all of our questions are welcome, right? But we want you to know that here at Genesis, when you have questions like this, we're going to go to Scripture to find answers because we believe that God is the author of life. We believe that God has revealed things about life in his word. And so when we look at these questions, we're going to say, hey, bring your questions, but let's see what does God have to say about these things. So I want to jump into my question for the day. And this is, I love this question because all of us have thought about this at some point in time. You, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you're following him or not, whether you believe in God or not, you've wondered about this question because it doesn't have to do just with life right here and now. It has to do with what happens after this life is over. And there's lots of different ways that we could ask this question. Maybe you could say, well, what happens after we die? That's one way to ask the question. You could get a little more specific and say, well, what does the Bible say about the afterlife? That's a little more specific. You can get a little racy and say, what does the Bible say about heaven and hell? Now we're getting real, right? Those are all some legitimate questions that people have. But when we ask this question, I want to get really specific because I think when you ask a specific question, you're going to get a specific answer. And I want to see what Jesus had to say about this because Jesus made some pretty bold, even ridiculous claims about who he was. He claimed to be the one and only son of God. And we believe here at Genesis, he backed that up by rising from the dead. So anything that Jesus said on this topic, I'm especially interested in. So if I'm asking this question for a friend, this is the way I'm going to ask it. What did Jesus say about heaven and hell? What did he have to say about the reality of the afterlife? And as it turns out, Jesus talked a lot about heaven and hell being a reality. And there's lots of different places in scripture that we could go to see what he said, but there's a very specific story that he tells, a parable that he tells, that I think gives us a lot of information that's good to start with. So if you want to follow along with us today, we're going to be in Luke 
chapter 16 in the Gospel of Luke. You can find that on your phone or in the Bibles around the room. That's on page 730. But while you're turning there, I want you to think about this. Why is this question so important? Well, I'm going to guess that you're like me. You have probably had a loved one die or someone is sick and death is a reality. Or maybe you're afraid to die and you're wondering, well, what happens? Where do we go when we die? What, you know, who determines that? What, what is that all about? That is at the heart of this question. And Jesus is actually going to talk about this in very specific terms in Luke 16. So Luke, Luke 16, 19, Jesus says this. There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So in this story, Jesus says there's two men. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man did what rich men do. He went and bought all the purple clothing he could find, right? That's just what rich guys do. Bring him all the purple clothing. He probably had a really sweet camel that he drove around town. He was living the high life. He was rich. But then there's this poor man. And it says, Jesus says, this poor man was so poor. He was so poor. He didn't just long to eat the rich man's leftovers. He longed to eat the scraps that were still on his plate that were going to be thrown away. How poor. How hungry do you have to be to long for that? And it says apparently that this poor man doesn't have many friends. The only friends he has are the dogs that come and lick his open sores. I mean, think about how disgusting of a living that would be. These two men couldn't be more different. Well, Jesus goes on and says this. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died. He was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now, this man, Abraham, that's introduced to the story here, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. You learn about him in Genesis 12. He is not God, but he is kind of like a godlike figure in this story, and there's a dialogue that we're going to see that takes place between the rich man and Abraham. But what we learn is that both of these men die, and when both of these men die, they both go to two separate places. The poor man goes to a place called Abraham's side at a heavenly banquet. It says, Jesus says, the angels took him there. Now, you would assume that's a good place, right? The rich man, on on the other hand, he died and went to a place of torment. And so we get the idea that there's a good place and there's a bad place. And Jesus kind of refers to the bad place as even miserable. I mean, this, these two men, two opposite lives, ending up at two opposite locations. Look at verse 24. When the rich man arrives there, he says this. He shouts, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger into the water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being tormented, and you are there in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Now, again, we see that the rich man has arrived in a hot place. He is thirsty. He's in anguish. There's flames. I don't think that this is an all-inclusive resort in Mexico, right? That's not where he is. It doesn't sound that nice compared to Lazarus who's in a place of comfort. But the most important detail that we learn from Jesus in this story is this. There was a great chasm, and no one 
could cross over. Once they got where they were, there wasn't an exit door. It's like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Once you're there, you're there. Now, that's an intriguing story, and it brings up all kinds of questions, but there's one really important thing that we learn from Jesus in this story, and it's this. Jesus taught that every one of us will spend eternity somewhere. Every one of us will spend eternity after our life here somewhere. Now, let's be honest. That's probably not new information for a lot of us, right? But here's one thing that's really important for us to know. Jesus wasn't introducing a new idea here. Other first century rabbis talked about the reality of places like heaven and hell. So Jesus wasn't introducing anything new. But what we do need to know is Jesus believed that there's a lot more to this life than what we experience on this earth. And as it turns out, he says it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are because in the end, death will be the great equalizer for all of us. And when we die, we will all arrive at one of two places. There's a place of blessing or there's a place of punishment. Now, what's interesting to me in this story is that Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about this place of blessing. I would, I would imagine that he's going to talk more about this good place, because Jesus is a half glass, uh, glasses, half full kind of guy, right? He talks a lot about grace and mercy and love. I would expect him to talk more about the good side of this, but he doesn't. He actually spends more time talking about this place of punishment, and on multiple occasions, he uses words like anguish and torment to stress the fact that it's a place of definite pain. And as I've studied this passage, I just thought, gosh, Jesus, why did, you, why did you focus more on the negative than the positive? But while I was studying for the scripture, I learned something that was really fascinating to me. And I want you to think about this. No other person in scripture stressed the reality of hell as the final consequence of God's judgment and condemnation more than Jesus. Now, Jesus talked a lot about grace in mercy, in love, but no other person throughout scripture talked more about the reality of heaven and hell than Jesus. Throughout the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about hell a lot, and he uses words like, he refers to it as a horrible place of punishment. He uses images of fire and darkness to describe how horrible it's going to be for people that are destined to live apart from God. In Matthew 13, he describes hell as a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8, he uses the image of people being thrown into outer darkness, stressing that it's a place of great sorrow, loss, and misery. Now again, this is common teaching among other first century rabbis. Jesus isn't introducing a new idea here. Now in one account, Jesus likened hell to parenting. And he said it's like the nonstop bickering of siblings that are never thankful for what they have. They always complain about what they don't have, and they fight about everything else all the time. Jesus didn't say that, okay? Now, I was preparing for this one day, and I was reading a book about hell in my front room, and I heard siblings arguing in the background, and I thought, you know, if Jesus had kids, he would have said, hell is like bickering siblings. He didn't say that. But maybe the strongest description that Jesus provided about the reality of hell comes from Matthew 25, 41 where he describes hell as a place of eternal fire that's been, now listen to this, this is, it's been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's been prepared for the enemies, those opposed to God. 
And in verse 46, he refers to it as a place of eternal punishment. Now, I don't know about you guys. That sounds more awful than anything I have ever experienced, anything I will experience, or anything I could imagine on this earth. But it wasn't just Jesus that talked about the reality of hell. His followers picked up on this theme, and they talked about hell a lot too. Now, the Apostle Paul is credited with writing 13 of the 27 letters in the New Testament. But here's what's interesting about Paul's writing. Never once does Paul use the word hell. Isn't that fascinating? Now, you might think that he's trying to avoid the topic altogether. But while he didn't use the word hell, he described people's fate apart from Christ as a spiritual death that would come as a result of their sins. And he used words like this. He said people will be condemned and they will be judged by God. They will be punished by God when Christ returns. Paul makes 83 references like that in his 13 letters. Now, Francis Chan puts this into perspective. He says, Paul made references to the fate of unrepentant sinners more times in his letters than he mentioned God's forgiveness, mercy, or heaven combined. So while it's safe to say that Paul didn't use the word hell once, he certainly believed in a horrific fate for anyone that would die apart from Christ. Some of Paul's strongest words on this matter come from 2 Thessalonians 1, where he says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And I I don't know about you, but every time I read those words, I think, man, that sounds like a very serious warning about a very real eternal place. But just in case Jesus and Paul aren't convincing enough, In the book of Revelation, one of Jesus' best friends, John, gives a very vivid description of what will happen to those that stand opposed to Christ. Listen to John's words. He says, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Paul, let's have this guy back more often. He talks about things that make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, right? I mean, let's be honest. This is a a heavy topic, isn't it? And if what Jesus and Paul and John say are true, there are eternal implications for me and for you and for the people that we love. It just sounds like a lot of bad news. And bad news is not fun to share, but there is good news because this isn't where the story ends. Because even though Jesus taught that everyone would spend eternity in one of two places, thankfully, we know this. Jesus never told anyone to go to hell. Jesus never told anyone to go to hell. There's no doubt that he taught about hell being a real place. He didn't mince words when he came to warning people about how awful it would be. But in spite of all of his seemingly harsh teachings, we never find Jesus condemning anyone there. In fact, Jesus did the opposite. In fact, he is known for a very famous quote that he made that comes from John chapter 3. You've probably heard it before. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, in that very familiar verse, Jesus acknowledges there's a place of punishment and there's a place of blessing. But he says people don't have to perish in the place of punishment 
they can have eternal life with God in heaven. And I love verse 17 because Jesus makes it clear God didn't send him here to condemn us all to hell. Instead, Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of hell so that we could enjoy the blessing of heaven. I mean, did you, did you catch that? The whole reason that Jesus came was to help make heaven a reality for every one of us that's destined to go to hell. And while Jesus taught that hell is a place of punishment and condemnation and separation apart from God for all eternity, he also taught that heaven is a place of eternal security and love that comes from God himself. When describing heaven, Jesus used metaphors that likened it to a party. He talked about a marriage supper and a wedding feast where there would be eating and drinking and dancing and music and laughter and joy and celebration. And most importantly, when Jesus referred to heaven, he referred to it as his father's house. Now, depending on what your dad's like, that might not sound too enticing, right? If you come from a dysfunctional family, your dad's house might sound more like hell than heaven. But you got to remember, when Jesus talks about his father, he's talking about the God of the universe, his perfect, loving, heavenly father. And Jesus told his disciples on one occasion, he said this, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would not have told you, but I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now, think about what Jesus is saying in that, in the, in that, in that phrase. In his resurrected body right now, he is preparing a place for every one of us that has placed our trust in him. Right now, he's preparing a place for us in heaven. You have a room in heaven with your name on it. That's pretty cool, right? That's exciting. One of my favorite pastors, Bob Russell, he speculates on what some of these other rooms might be like. He says, I wonder if there's a media room in heaven where you'll be able to watch film of all the great events that ever took place on earth. And this isn't like a cheesy reenactment or movie. This is, you'll be able to sit down and watch the actual events take place. If you're a history buff, that probably sounds pretty cool, right? Bob wonders if maybe there's a recreation room where you can go and sign up for tours of the universe to go to all the places you've ever been curious about. If there is a recreation room in heaven, I'm signing up for golf lessons and guitar lessons because I can't play either very well here on earth. I, I would like to at least enjoy eternity by playing good golf, right? Maybe there's a classroom in heaven where you can go and you can ask all your questions about all the things that puzzled you. And you can raise your hand and say, hey, God, how old's the earth? And how did the, the Grand Canyon form? And what happened to the dinosaurs, right? Those are legit questions that we all have. Now, I have a warm-up question in heaven. I'm going to raise my hand and say, Lord, my name is Jerry. You already know my name is Jerry. Okay, glad to be here. Good to see you. I have a warm-up question. That might be me. I'll stand real still. Here's my warm-up question. Why were the patriots in Kentucky allowed to be so good on earth? It just wasn't fair. I mean, we had to suffer through that, really. Just one warm-up, Lord. I've got, other, I've got other tough questions. But here's the thing. Whatever heaven's like, one thing is for sure. We're not going to be bored. We're not going to be sitting on a cloud strumming harps. Heaven's going to be a fascinating place of eternal discovery. We'll never fully know what God is like, but we get to spend all eternity getting to know him. And God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they'll be there. We'll get to interact with them. Not like we interact with them now, but face-to-face -face and in person. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty sweet place. I want to go to that place. And In fact, maybe some of you are saying, yeah, sign me up. How do I get there? Well, Jesus said there's a way to get there. But in Matthew 7, Jesus says that actually the way to get there is really narrow. 
He says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus said, there's a really narrow path if you want to get to heaven. And then in John 14, Jesus said, let me tell you just how narrow this path is. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father. No one goes to my dad's house. No one gets to enjoy heaven except by coming through me. Jesus claimed the only way to avoid hell and to get to heaven is through him. Now, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, absolutely. I absolutely believe in that because you believe that Jesus has done something for you that you know you can't do for yourself. But let's be honest, in a room this size, there's probably some folks here that are skeptical of who Jesus is. And you know what? We're really glad that you're here. Your questions are welcomed and you are always welcome. I just have one question for you. What if Jesus is telling the truth? Because it'd be, it'd be really easy for you to say, you know, those are, that's a really exclusive statement that he makes. It's, honestly, it's a little offensive to everybody else in the world around us. And I get it, but what if he's telling the truth? And I'm going to be honest with you. I remember when this became a reality for me. I grew up in a home, I went to church every Sunday, and I, I was taught that there's one God in heaven, that Jesus is his son, that he died to pay for my sins. I knew, like, all those things were here. But when I graduated high school and I went to college, I just started going through the motions because good people go to church and good people are nice to people. And so I thought, well, that's, that's kind of what I'm going to do. And then I met this really beautiful girl who would end up being my wife. But while we were dating, she, enjoyed, she invited me to go to church with her, and they did something really interesting with the Bible. They opened it up, and they read it, and all of a sudden, this Jesus guy, he was real to these people. But then there was this one person, my future mother-in-law, who had a relationship with him that was unlike anything I had ever seen. And I remember one night we were sitting in, her, in their living room, and she started asking me questions about what I believed and she was real sweet, like, just like, hey, what do you believe about Jesus and all these things? And then she asked me this one question that no one had ever asked me before. And as soon as she asked this question, like, my life was put on pause and heaven and hell were a very real reality. She said, well, what do you believe about Jesus' return? She just asked it real simple like that. And guys, I got to be honest with you. I had never heard anyone talk about him coming back. I didn't know he was coming back. I was just going to go live my life. And at that moment, I realized that woman knows Jesus, and he knows her, and she is confident about where she's going. And guys, I kid you not, it was like I was standing on the edge of a cliff, and I realized if Jesus returned right then, my toes were hanging over the edge, and I would not go to heaven because I didn't know Jesus. Not because God's mean. I didn't know him. I hadn't taken him up on his offer of eternal life. Now, I don't know what your story is, but if you find yourself hanging with your toes over the edge of that cliff, can I just encourage you to drive really carefully and to take very good care of your life and to figure out who Jesus is so you know for sure? Because I believe eternity hangs in the balance. Now, there's good news. Following Jesus, getting to know Jesus isn't difficult. It's not complicated or hard. Pastor Bob Russell says one of the things about heaven that most people miss out on is that most people won't go there. 
there was a, there was a survey that was done a while back. 85% of Americans felt like they were going to heaven, and most of them said these words. This is exactly what I told someone when I was 20 years old. Why would you go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. That's, that was my answer. I'm a good person, right? I mean, never mind all the stupid things I had done to people. I'm a good person. Well, you can think that, but according to the Apostle Paul, that's not accurate. It's not biblically true. The Apostle Paul says that every human that's ever lived has sinned and damaged their relationship with God, which means we're separated from God. And in Romans 6, 23, Paul writes, the wages of that sin, what we earn for that is death, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, separation from God for all eternity in hell. But he ends Romans 6, 23 by saying this, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thankfully, not, not, Jesus not only claimed to have the power over sin and death, he proved it when he rose from the dead. So when he says, I've come to save you, he's done the one thing that all of us can't do for ourselves in order to get to heaven, and he backed it up by rising from the dead. And no other religious leader can make that claim. Not Moses, not Buddha, not Muhammad, only Jesus. So how can you begin following Jesus? Well, you just have to admit you're like everybody else. You've sinned. You've damaged your relationship with God. And once you admit you're a sinner, you believe in him. And you don't just believe that he's God's only son. You have faith in the fact that when he died, he died for you and he died for me. And you have faith that he rose from the dead to back up that claim. And then the apostle Paul says, you confess your belief out loud. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then you respond by being baptized into him. Now, two weeks ago, on Easter Sunday, we celebrated 15 baptisms across our two campuses. And we celebrate a lot of things at Genesis, right? But we don't celebrate anything like we celebrate baptisms. I mean, what a cool thing to celebrate when people surrender their life to Christ. Since then, I've had the privilege of talking to two other men about receiving Jesus and being baptized. And maybe you've thought about that before. It's not too late. Jesus wants to save you from the penalty of hell so you can enjoy the blessing of heaven. And here's the best part of the whole deal. When you place your trust in Jesus, you don't just get your ticket punched to heaven. You don't just get out of hell. He wants to use your life right now to have an eternal impact. This is why we talk about making disciples here at Genesis. Jesus told his disciples, you go make disciples. And the idea is that those disciples make disciples. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. That's why we exist as a church family. He doesn't want to just snatch you from hell. He wants you to bring heaven to earth by sharing the good news of Jesus. Now, if you go back to that, that story in Luke 16, it ends in a very interesting way. Remember the rich man is trapped in hell and the the, the, the poor man is at the heavenly banquet. Well, look at verse 27. It says, the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send someone to my father's home, for I have brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. All of a sudden, when he realizes he's trapped in hell, he starts asking for a friend. I have five brothers, and I don't want them to end up here. Verse 29, Abraham says, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers, can we read what they wrote? Basically, what Abraham says is, they have scripture that points them to the way of life. They have exactly what you have. And then the rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and they'll turn to God. 
But Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know what I love about that story? That's exactly what Jesus has claimed to do. He predicted his death. He made it clear why he was dying. He predicted his resurrection. And if you're like me, I've never seen him with my eyes, but I believe that he's real. I believe, I have confidence that I'm going to go to heaven, not because I'm a good person, but because of what he's done for me. But some of us are like, yeah, I don't know. And I just, if, if you find yourself there, I'm glad you're here. Please keep coming. But what will you do with Jesus? And for those of us that follow Jesus, don't just coast to heaven. That's not what he's called us to. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we thank you for the truth of your word. And you know, the, the, the truth is, this is not a fun subject to stand in front of people and talk about the reality of heaven and hell, but it's been your story from the very beginning. You created the earth to be perfect, and you, you set Adam and Eve up to live in perfect harmony with you, and you, you said, hey, you can do anything you want, but if you do this one thing, you're going to die. And that's exactly what happened. But instead of killing them and starting over, you made a promise that one day you would send a, a he, a Messiah that would come and make everything right. And so while we think that hell isn't fair. The reality is hell is very fair. We all deserve it. But through Jesus, through the Messiah, you're unfair. You invite us into heaven. You forgive our sins. You offer us eternal life, and we're so thankful. Jesus, would you help those of us that follow you as Christians to make our lives all about you? And I pray for folks, Jesus, that don't know you. Would you help them to see the reality, this eternal reality that you talked about? And I pray that you would draw them to you by the power of your, the Holy Spirit and for the glory of your name. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.